Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And today I have a rock star on by the name of Jay Lauren Norris. This guy is amazing. I met him through Craig Doeswalt at Craig's event. This guy is absolutely amazing with an incredible story. So do me a favor, do your friends a favor, and go ahead and share this out. Share it out, and we will see you in just a minute. And we're back. Let me bring Lauren on. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Grateful to have you here, man. Um, we talked a little bit when I was down in Dallas, I want to say the other day. Feels like the other day, kind of. A um, couple weeks ago. But you do a lot of audio video stuff and all kinds of cool. And I'm a tech geek, so I think... Uh, I think we, we might have fun today, but so I, you know, I've done, done 400 and some of these interviews and, and I, I look, I originally started this because I felt stuck in life and I thought, you know what, if I hear enough people talk about how they got unstuck, it'll help me. So, um, and it has, so, so let's start with, you know, you talking about where it all began for you, where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in central Texas in a little town called Lamb Passes, small town. People used to joke that, you know, there's about 5,000 of us there and 3,000 of those are cows. Oh, jeez. So real small town, 5,000. That's small. Yeah, I think we had less than 200 in my graduating class. Wow. So what was it uh, in central Texas? I mean, what was it like for you growing up in central Texas? Were you on a farm or... Now, we might as well have been. Actually, we moved back to Central Texas after my stepdad died when I was about nine years old. And my mom never remarried. So I was raised the only son of a single mom uh, in a small town in the middle of nowhere. By the time I was 13 years old, I had my own keys to the house, my own keys to the van and a, and a part time job after school. So I kind of wow. came and went as I pleased. I did what I wanted to. She worked um, some 24 hour shifts, sometimes three, four days in a row. So we'd She'd leave work, leave for work on Monday morning and not be home till Thursday night. And it was in the same wow. town. But, you know, when you're 13 years old and I had an older sister and a younger sister, um, you know, I, I would often find myself out at eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night on a school night, you know, hiding out in the bushes and scaring the cars as they drove by with my friends. That was the kind of kind of excitement we found in that small town. Yeah. So you um, you went to high school and everything there. Um, yep, graduated you, from high school there in 87. Okay. All right. So you're you're a year younger than me. Just figured that out. So so um did you go to college after that or where, Well, where I, I started to I I left um I actually had scholarship offers for music, for physics and for speech to go to university University of North Texas. 
And I turned those scholarships down because I had a girlfriend at the time. And I thought, you know, my world revolves around her. I've been with her since my sophomore year, uh, beginning of my junior year. I, I don't want any anything to come between us. So I picked a school closer to home and I went to school in Austin instead of Denton because it was an hour away instead of three and a half. Right. And uh, so I went to school for electronics engineering at ITT and okay. got a full year under my belt. Called her one day to say, hey, I'm coming home for my for my summer break. I'll be, you know, I can pick you up by the time school is out. I've just got to do a final exam in the morning. And her reply to me was, who is this? And I'm like, what? After a year and 11 months, you don't recognize my voice on the phone? And that was when I realized that was over. And I became an emotional basket case, failed my test the next day, quit school, joined the Air Force. So I never even finished my electronics engineering school I got a whole lot of it under my belt, but then joined the Air Force and became a firefighter instead. So you, and it looks like my internet is acting crazy. Can you hear me okay? I do. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I'm getting a weak signal thing. Um, so you, you at that point, you joined the Air Force like the next day or was it like a... a it was within a matter of months. I mean, that would have happened the end of May and I was on active duty by September 30th. So, you know, there was a little, I think it was a 90 day delayed entry program. And, you know, but I, I joined, signed up, signed the papers with the recruiter uh, to go within 30 days of that, of that breakup. Wow. So where did you go to boot camp then? Where'd you end up? Oh, the, the notorious Lackland Air Force Base, San Antonio. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you in still September, were in Texas. Summer. Yep. Wow. Yep. And and it's nice and cool there in the summer. So. <laughs> yeah, it was still in the nineties at ten o'clock at night on September the thirtieth when I started going. When I when I went into to basic training, we were still sleeping with the windows open in the dorm room. Oh my gosh! No AC. No, not in basic training. <laughs> they couldn't get away with that now. <laughs> no, you couldn't get away with that now. Yeah. They so, wouldn't get away with a lot of the stuff like kicking trash cans and throwing things across the room and turning beds over with people in them. And that was yeah. the norm when I was in basic. Yeah, I remember my brother was in the Navy and he's like, dude, they talked about mom <laughs> in really bad ways. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, wow. So, uh, well, thank you for your service. Yes, um, but so, so you, you joined the air force, you, um, went to, went to, um, San Antonio for basic, where did things go from there for you? How long were you in the air force? Well, I went in, in, in September of 88 and they sent me from, uh, Lackland after I finished my basic training to Chanute, Illinois, uh, Champaign, Illinois. And okay. I did my, uh, fire Academy training there. First time I charged a handline, I it, I was on ice, probably two and a half inches thick. It pushed me back about 50 feet before I was able to get traction. And I was laying, I went from a kneeling position to, to a prone position, laying on my face, trying to hold that hose down and just couldn't do it. Um, wow. Pushed me straight back. And then, so I, the first fire I ever fought was on ice and we spent uh, several weeks there in training. And then I went from there to lack to, um, what used to be called Reese Air Force Base or Reese Airplane Patch out in the middle of Lubbock, Texas, in the middle of nowhere where Texas Tech is. It's now a UN base, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. So so the Air Force fights fires? 
Well, the Air Force has its own fire department to protect the base. And because there's so many things on the base that, you know, you wouldn't want a volunteer fire department or a, a, a civilian fire department seeing some of the things that we have to guard to put out and et cetera, et cetera. And part of that included in, in my assignment, you know, I spent some time as a 911 operator. Of course, everybody that comes in goes straight into structural. And so, I, you know, house fires and car fires and stuff. But I spent most of my time in crash rescue meaning I had to learn the ins and the outs of the various types of airplanes we supported, how to get the hatches open, how to get in and out, how to get the pilots out. You know, that we have some aircraft that the only way to approach the cockpit is to climb on top of the aircraft and come into the roof. Some of them, you know, you go in a, a standard cargo door like you would if you're getting on a major airliner. And so yeah. knowing which ones of those is which and how to get in and out and where to safe the weapons and what other hazards you might face, you know, whether it's hot breaks or detonated missiles or cannons, uh, all of those are the the fodder, if you will, of the of the training of the firefighter when you're in the Air Force. Wow, that's intense. So you're dealing with missiles and bombs and all kinds of stuff. Uh, potentially any one of those, yeah. And of course, everything that's on that aircraft when it's engaged in in war. And I served during Desert Shield and Desert Storm. I was in Honduras when it started and in England when it ended. And so the that process of you know, obviously you can't load an aircraft unless there's someplace to store that ammunition, those missiles, et cetera, et cetera. And that's generally on base somewhere, which means you've got a structure that looks like a structure, but acts like uh, a very large bomb or lots of them. Wow. wow. So, so you, you said you just quickly went by, did you end up in desert storm or any of the well, during Desert Shield, I was in Honduras when it all started. Uh, I was okay. training the the local firefighters for the Honduran Army. Um, okay. And then we had wow. uh, orders to leave there and go to England. So I went to Lakenheath uh, Air Force Base in England, and the EF-111s flew out of there. So that they were flying straight into Kuwait. I did have guys out of my department that actually were shipped out to the sand to be part of the Ford operating bases that were fighting fires and, you know, providing medical attention along with the EMTs and the, and the ambulances for the uh, fighter jets and the ground equipment people that were on the ground in the sand. I never got deployed to the sand, but uh, we transitioned from the EF-111s to the F-15 Strike Eagles in the time that I was there uh, at Lake and Heath as well. Wow. So, so you went from, I'm going to ITT to the air force and, um, firefighting instead of, instead of getting into the, the technical, um, the technical, how do I, I don't even know how to word that. The, the technology stuff you were, you were on the, on the ground doing firefighting stuff. That's, that's a big difference. Well, the difference was caused by my own behavior in that, time gap between graduating from high school or, or even probably the last year or two in high school until I enrolled in the Air Force. Uh, in the gap between those, I was quite the, for lack of a better term, hellion. Uh, so mm. when I got to basic training and what they call the MEPS station, the Military Entrance Processing System, yep. uh, while I was there, they brought me in and they said, look, we, we see you're enrolled in EOD, which is Explosive Ordnance Disposal. And your training in electronics engineering is going to fit into that really well, because by the time you get done with EOD, you'll have the equivalent of a master's degree in electronics engineering. And I was like, sweet, that that's a perfect path. I'm, I'm good with that. They said, the problem is you have 13 moving violations on your record, and one of those is outstanding. You haven't even paid the ticket on it yet. 
Wow. And I said, okay. They said, well, that means you cannot have a top secret security clearance. You apparently have a problem with the law. But you can't have oh. a secret security clearance. And with that, you can either be a supply clerk or a firefighter. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not spending my life kicking boxes. So I became a firefighter. And then, unfortunately, at one point, I destroyed the cartilage in both knees on a training drill. Oh. And that left me uh, in temporary duty assigned to the supply clerk. <laughs> uh. for, uh, almost a, almost a, a six months, 10, uh, while oh, my, my knees were recovering. I was going through rehab. Wow. So, so how long were you in the air force? Five years, five years. Yeah. So you, you eventually, and you spent most of that time as a firefighter. Is that right? All of that time as a firefighter. That was what we, the air force calls an AFSC or an assigned service code. Okay. Um, so what's interesting, I used to have a roommate in Seattle that was in the Navy and he was an underwater firefighter. Right. Everybody in the Navy that's a, that's deployed on a ship has to go through the same kind of fire Academy that we went to, but uh, with advanced stuff. So whatever their role is, whether they're on the flight line, they're on the flight deck or they're a mechanic, whatever else, there's no way to call in assistance when you're on the, on the ship. So there are people who are assigned to firefighting, but everybody gets the same kind of training in firefighting and, and paramedics wow. uh, when they're on the ship because there's there's no other options. Right, right. So so you get out, you're you're in for five years. You you um and you were in England when you got out. Is that right, or had you yep, come? Yeah, I separated from England in February of ninety three. Okay, so you you did you stay in England or did you come back home? I came back home almost right away. Yeah. Wow. Um, I don't know who Facebook user is, but they love you. <laughs> so, um, so, so, um, where, what, where'd you land back in Texas? Well, I came back home to my home of record, my mom's uh, hometown of Lampasas and, oh. you know, made, made my way back there for a short period of time, then realized there's not much going on in this little town and, and I need to get out. Um, my granddad, we kind of found him. I say found him. My mom and dad divorced when I was about four or five years old. And so my grandparents on that side of the family were not even a part of my life growing up, uh, just kind of in and out. And so I really wanted to spend some time around him and packed up everything I had in the back of an old truck and, and drove out to um, Lindale, Texas, which is, believe it or not, smaller than Lampasas, Texas, and moved in wow. with my granddad and took a job as a youth pastor and, you know, doing whatever odd jobs I could to make ends meet because being a youth pastor in a small church doesn't pay anything and uh, stayed there for a few months and then found a, a real job and, and moved on from that and went back into sales. So, so wait, wait a minute. How did where did pastoring come into play? You, you just said you were a hellion and, and you were in the air force, a firefighter. And all of a sudden you're a pastor. How did that happen? Well, so while I was in the air force, I, you know, I, I got a chance to really look back at the who that I was and, and growing up, you know, like I said, I had, had no boundaries. I had one uncle who was in and out of jail. I had another uncle who was very violent, uh, just kind of, I mean, he was as old country as it gets, uh, still to this day uses racial slurs and, you know, don't cross him because he'll beat you up because you have a face on your head, you know, kind of a guy. Um, he's probably a little more mellow in his old age, but as long as I've known him and as much as my kids have been around him, that's been the case. So that, those were my two real, uh, male role models in my life. 
Yeah. By the time I got the basic training, you know, I, I remember telling a guy, never forget him, Charles Givens, six foot five African-American guy at my first duty assignment. Um, I used to, he would say, you know, I, I thought you were a Christian because it says on my dog tag that I'm a Christian. And he said, you know, Christians don't talk like that. And I had a really bad mouth. And mm. I walked through one day and he was sitting in the break room and and just reading something. And, and he uh, he said, why do you always talk like that? But you tell me you're a Christian. I said, you show me one place in the Bible that says thou shalt not cuss and I'll quit. <laughs> he was he was the wrong guy to challenge with that. Uh... He knew the word like nobody's business. And he said, well, how about this one? And 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 he just went down a litany and, and basically schooled me over the next year and a half that I was at that base. Um, so I turned around and redirected my faith based on an event that happened in basic training as well, where I felt like, you know, I, like I said, it was 90 degrees. The windows are open. There's no air conditioning. And the day that I got made dorm chief in basic training, everybody in the room was just having a hard time. Everybody was fighting with each other. But guys were crying themselves to sleep at night. You know, day 10, you're just kind of in that transition, still trying to figure out what happened to your life. They've yeah. cut your hair off. You've lost your identity. You've been beaten down, you know, over and over. And they made me dorm chief. And that night I was trying to write a poem to my girlfriend. And wouldn't answer, wouldn't uh, come out to a, I was trying to write a letter and it kept turning into a poem. And I finally just got mad and gave up. Well, that same day they made me dorm chief, we had been given liberty to call home. And that's why everybody was an emotional basket case. When I tried to call home, of course, you got to call collect. And my girlfriend's grandmother wouldn't take the call and hung up on me. I called back again. She said, she doesn't ever want to talk to you again and hung up on me again. And that wow. was the second time in my life that, you know, my whole world hinged around an individual. And so here I am in basic training. I'm now in charge of these 40 something guys. I've got to get them through the through the hoops of basic training, if you will, along with my drill instructors. And I'm a basket case. And so this letter was trying to say to her, hey, I, I need you to be there. I, I don't need somebody who's going to turn their back on me. Yeah. And as I'm writing this letter that keeps turning to a poem, I realized the last three lines basically said the same thing. And one of those lines said, I never turned my back on you. And I had this epiphany of Jesus leaning against the door. He said, I never, never turned my back on you. You mm. turned your back on me. Wow. And so that began a new journey in my life. Of course, I grew up in a, in a church in central Texas. You know, everybody's a Baptist because, you know, your parents are because your family is because that's the way it works in the Bible Belt. Yeah. And so I, I never studied the Bible per se, other than memorizing drills to win the cookie at the at the vacation Bible school. But, right. you know, never really put anything into it until I got to my first base. And when Charles Givens said, you think, you know, but you don't know what you're talking about. Right. And that's when serious study began on my part. So over the next four or five years, I had a whole lot of research, a whole lot of time to read and study a whole lot of time in the 911 operating center being the only person in the room with me and my Bible for, you know, 12 hour shifts overnight. I did a lot of reading. A lot wow. Of reading. Do you know Jay Fox? He lives down there in Dallas. He just came up with a <laughs> Jay oh Fox. God. He's a nationally syndicated radio host. He, he was on, um, he was on ABC. He lives in Dallas. He's funny. Um, so watch watching over 40 men and thinking of you and, and my <laughs> wife is watching as well. God puts teachers in our path when we need them. Isn't that the truth? 
Absolutely. Wow. What Dude, is that I, love, I, I love your epiphany that you said you, you had of Jesus leaning against the doorway and, and, and saying, I never turned my back on you. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was a real journey because, you know, like I said, no male role models in my life. Nobody, nobody with the strength of character and the um, ability to articulate, to say you're wrong and you need to change this. Mm. You know, I, I was molested at nine years old. And mm -hmm. that led me down a path that eventually became identified as a 25 year sexual addiction. Uh, wow. I was addicted to pornography and stuff before there was any internet. Thank God. Uh, you know, for me, it was magazines and things of that nature. But I remember at one time saying, I've done things that Hugh Hefner would, would blush at. I've been mm -hmm. involved in things that, that the penthouse can't print. And so there was a sense of pride in me related to that uh, failure. But mm. 25 years later, I was able to break that addiction. Unfortunately, there was a huge overlap of that. Right after I got out of the Air Force in, in February of 93, had a couple more uh, errant relationships. But then in September of 93, I met the woman who is now my wife 28 years later. Wow. And the first 10 years of our marriage, four kids, 13 moves, nine jobs. And 10 years of that, I was still addicted to porn. Wow. Hey, Drew Black asked a question on YouTube, dying sure. to know what those scriptures are, please. Oh, the most important one is in James when he says, let no filthy communication come from your mouth. Uh, Philippians 4 that says, think on these things which are true and holy and pure and just. Uh, so really, it doesn't go back as much to thou shalt not cuss because you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that specific verbiology would be more of an English present. But it does say, you know, from your mouth comes both blessings and cursings, both life and death. You have the option um, to speak life or speak death. That's in yeah. Deuteronomy and Leviticus uh, chapter 38, uh, speaking life and death and the death of multiple generations. And so the, the words that come out of your mouth, whether they're wholesome and building people up or they're destructive and curses, that is a choice that we make. And it goes back to attitude, which is another one of the books that I'm working on finishing up now called Attitude Hack. And you know what's interesting? It's the second sentence in the in the entire Bible. The second sentence in Genesis, and the word in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Yeah, with God. Yeah. And in John one one, he says the same thing. In yeah. the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. Right. So it it I, I truly believe that that we speak or destroy life with our mouths. For sure. Absolutely. So, so, so back to, um, let's, let's go back to, you were, you were back in, I forget the name of the town that your grandfather was in. <laughs> Lindale, Texas. What is it? Lindale. Lindale. And that's even further out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it is at the time. Lindale was about 1700 people. Uh, it, it may be 3000 now, but it's, it's not much bigger than that. I remember being down in Texas and Dallas in February during yeah. that beautiful ice storm. Um, <laughs> once in a decade. Yeah. When somebody smashed my car with their something. Um, but anyway, I remember cause I drove to Phoenix after that and, right. and I'm like, I'm like, I look on the map and I'm like, Oh, that it's just right there. You just, <laughs> you know. 
and then I'm driving across the great state of Texas and I'm like, does this state come to an end ever? Like it's so humongous. And I was just up in the Northern part. I wasn't even down in the, so, so, you know, that it's, what's interesting is Texas literally could be its own country. I mean, it's huge. It, it technically was until 1836 or, in 1836, when we fought for our independence from Mexico and then uh, decided to join the, the United States as a state. But I believe there are only a handful of states that still hold the right to secede from the Union and maintain their own army, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know a lot of people have talked about that, but U.S. the, the Texas-U.S. Uh, pact actually has that in writing in, in the uh, joining of the Union documentation. Wow. So Texas has the right to su succeed from the union and, and maintain itself as a country. Right. And it also has as much farmland wow. as almost anything other than Nebraska or Wyoming. It also has more natural petroleum than any other state in the United States. It also has, aside from California as a single state has more shoreline or coastline for import and export, uh, yeah. has the most diverse terrain. We've got East Texas is great for lumbering and, and, uh, mm -hmm forestry, West Texas, uh, wide open for windmills, uh, South oh. Texas, you know, all the coast. And we even have the end of a mountain range in Texas, which most people don't know. Dude, the, the in West Texas, I literally, I remember I called my wife. I'm trying to take pictures. I have never seen, nobody has ever seen so many windmills in one place. Like nope. it's, it's got to be hundreds of miles. I, I don't know. I mean, it's crazy. It's there are so many windmills. Like as well, far it depends as on which way you go too. If you if you go out uh, ten, uh, if you go twenty up through Abilene and into Lubbock, or you go out ten through El Paso. If you go through El Paso from up, like Abilene all the way out, uh, it's hundreds of miles of, of windmills. Yeah, it's insane. I, I mean you. You can't even fathom it. It's something you have to see. And it's, yeah, it's and of like, course, now we have SpaceX is, too. Huh? We also have SpaceX now too. That's as well right. As That's right. And Tesla. And so, so, so back when you were, you know, it sounds like, and I'm trying to, you were what, 25 ish? Yep. When you, when you got back from the Air Force and you're out, out at your, where did things go? Um, look, Jay said you spent a year in Texas in one day. That is true. <laughs> that is yeah. So if, if you drive from here to Denver, it's 13 hours to get to Denver and only four of that is in Colorado. It's the not other nine hours man. is getting out of Texas. It's yeah, it's crazy. So, so where did things go for you from there? You, you'd been a firefighter in the air force and here you are now living in an even smaller town. Um, where did things go for you from there? So, you know, there are a couple of divergent paths within that journey. Uh, one of those was I, I went to an education counselor just before I got out of the Air Force. And um, she said, well, you know, you're a firefighter. That's a great career. You know, obviously that could be your, your lifelong job. I said, well, it could be, except I feel like I've got a different assignment on this earth, number one. Mm. Number two, I have no, no cartilage left in my knees. And so it's a, it's a mm. difficult job for, Nate, for me. Yeah. And, you know, my training is crash fire. So really the best job is at an airport where there are a lot of aircraft uh, or to come back in as a civilian in the military. And so, you know, I want to know what I can go to school for. And she said, well, well, what do you really want to do when you grow up? 
And I said, you know, I really want to be the next James Dobson. I want to travel around the country and speak and write books and, and change people's lives. I grew up in a broken home and I want to save families. That That's what mm. I believe I'm here for. I think that's what I'm gifted for. Wow. And she looked at me and she said, well, have you ever written anything? And I grabbed a stack, which is most of it's now published in this book, um, The God at Work. But let me see, well, hold that back up. Let me see that. That's your book. Yeah, this is one of three. Oh, that's awesome. So this one's 400 and almost 50 pages worth. Wow. And so I I randomly, at the time it wasn't a book, it was just a notebook full of stuff. So I randomly grabbed a page out of it. I didn't even look to see what it was. I handed it to her because she asked, have you ever written anything? And so I showed her the notebook that I handed her this page and she reads it and then gets up and walks out of the room. I was like, okay. She was gone for what seemed like ever. It was probably 10 minutes. But when she came back, she had mascara on the edges of her hair and her all of her makeup was gone. Wow. I was like, okay. And she said, uh, where'd you get that? I said, I wrote it. She said, well, I understand you typed it up. I mean, where did you get the sentiment behind it or the ideas behind it? And I said, well, they're mine. She said, you sure that didn't come from this James Dobson guy? I don't know who he is, but I'm, I'm guessing he thinks like that. I'm like, I don't know if he thinks like that or not. Actually, he would probably disapprove of it, but those are my own thoughts, my own emotions, my own feeling. Uh, everything that's in there is me. She wow. said, see, that's where I have a problem. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, no 25-year-old guy in the world writes like that. Wow. Okay. So what do I need to go to school for? Journalism, for English, uh, for psychology. What, what do I need to go to school for? She said, honestly, journalism is not even going to accept you. You submit something like that, they'll throw you out before you even get past the application. Okay. What about English? She said, I... I don't know anybody who has a degree in English who has a better control of the English language or articulation than you express in that piece. Wow. Okay. Uh, so what do I do then? She said, you know, honestly, if, if, if I just read that piece somewhere and, and you were asking me to identify the person out of a crowd who wrote it, I'd be looking for a woman with a, a very experienced face or a man maybe who's got gray hair and he's bald, you know, maybe he's been a pastor for a few decades or, or a psychotherapist or somebody like that. You know, I now wow. picture Jordan Peterson when I think of that, that definition. And I said, okay, so what do I do? She said, you're just going to have to continue being you doing whatever you can to get by, but nobody's going to believe a 25 year old wrote that, especially a 25 year old male who's never been married and never had kids. And this is you're 25. Yep. Wow. So the piece was about abortion. And the mm. piece was, I am both pro-choice and pro-life. And then it laid out my causes for that. And it wrecked her. And she wow. said, I, journalism's not going to accept you. You know, your theology and, and psychology, you're, you're light years ahead of where you should be at your age. And, and I just, I don't think it's going to be a good fit. So I went to school for nothing. I completely wasted my GI Bill. I never went back to college. I got out, had a couple of, you know, side jobs selling, et cetera, et cetera. Took that job as a, a youth pastor, but my past caught up with me. There was a young lady who was, she was in a lot of trouble emotionally. Her parents worked at the church, not on, they were on staff, but not as pastoral staff. They were administrative staff. And they're like, hey, you know, our daughter's in real trouble. She's been living in Dallas with this crazy guy. You know, just take her under your wing. And she and I became an item and that got carried away. And mm. so- I resigned from the position. She packed up and went back to Dallas and had several kids with him. And then last I heard was uh, not married to him anymore, but had a fistful of kids from that relationship. Wow. And I went down the path of 
obviously I'm not worthy to be a pastor and, and kind of stepped out of that role and, and never really went back to it per se, but I kept teaching and kept writing and kept speaking and uh, yeah. kept selling and yeah. then met my wife in September of uh, the same year of 93. So, so what were you selling? I mean, you were selling Jesus as a youth pastor, but, but what were you selling um, in your other jobs? Oh, I sold advertising for the local cable directory. Uh, I sold advertising for the farm and ranch directory. I took over running a uh, print shop um, first in in uh, Tyler. And it, that was probably one of my biggest, you know, if I look back on regrets from a business standpoint, I, I had been asked to drive a truck for this guy. Turned out he was a drug dealer. And so the whole company ended up in trouble. He got murdered. And I lost the job driving the truck, went back to my singles pastor. I'm like, hey, I need another job. And he's like, I just happen to know this guy who's running a restaurant. He needs a manager. Have you ever managed a restaurant? I'm like, no, but I'm a smart guy. I can figure it out. So I took that job, uh, did that for several months. And then they decided their daughter needed the job now that the store was successful. And so I went to drive in a cab. And then I went back to selling advertising. And so I drive in a cab in that small town. Well, in Tyler, which is a town of about 100,000. They have cabs for a hundred thousand people. Yes. Wow. There were seven of us. Seven two companies, cabs. Two companies, seven cabs. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, for a hundred thousand people. <laughs> for a hundred thousand people. Well, remember, Tyler is like the rest of Texas. When you say I need to go across town, that's a 45-minute trip. There's nothing right. between here and there, but it's all the way over yonder. <laughs> over yonder that's actually part of the uh, the when somebody's giving directions in texas yonder yes, is. is always included <laughs> i i had a friend that had moved here from south dakota he and i worked together at verizon and i i told him he wanted to have a, a booth at canton first monday which is kind of part of that tyler east texas you know conglomerate of cities and he said you know there's 200,000 people that come I want to have a booth out there I want to sell my stuff and I said well here's what I bet's going to happen and I told him this while we're driving down there in his little silver infinity and I said you know here's what's going to happen you're going to pull up there and some old dude with three teeth is going to look at you and go well you can go right down here past that creek when you go over the creek you're going to go up the hill and you're going to see a tree well and not a tree anymore it's just a stump take a left of that there stump and go down about a, a, a little piece and on the other side of that little piece you're going to come across cattle guard across that cattle guard you're going to find your you're going to find your parking place and then you walk back about halfway and that's where you're going to that's where you're going to sell and he looked at me and he's like there is nobody on this planet that talks like that yeah and I swear to you, it was like I had already been there. We pulled up. He rolls down the window. And this old guy in overalls with long hair and a, and a beat up old cowboy hat on leans in the window and goes, where are y'all from, boy? <laughs> yeah. And he had three teeth. And he goes, yeah. well, you can go right down here across this category. And I just busted up laughing. And Jamie was like, there is no way this is true. This is right. not happening. I'm like, hey, welcome to East Texas. That sounds like when I lived in West Virginia. It's kind they of they are not dissimilar. Yeah. I've been in both places. They are not dissimilar. Yeah. So 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 you met your wife that year. Yes. So you were twenty five. Yep. Or 25, 26, somewhere in there. Met your wife. Um, you got married soon after, or how how long did y'all date? We met on Maddie September. Got me saying y'all. <laughs> We, we met on September the 3rd in a church visitation team. There was a, a singles group that I was hanging out with a, a girl by the name of Betty Gerhardt. 
And Betty and I were part of the visitation team for singles that would come to, to Rose Heights Church of God there in Tyler. And yeah. we would go out and welcome them to come back. And so we showed up at this house of a lady who had visited the church. She opens the door, the porch light is out, the living room light is on, and she is in a white pantsuit. And I can see right through it. And I don't know if I was in love or not, but I was in heat. But she was oh gorgeous. And the only thing I could see was her bright blue eyes. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So we walked in the door. We sit down. <laughs> Betty's sitting on the couch. I'm sitting in this chair that's so worn out. My arms are up past my ears. Oh my I was probably God. in that chair five minutes. And then I hear this scream like a wild banshee. And she comes running out of the bathroom, this four-year-old redhead, dripping wet, stark naked, and leaps across the room into my lap. And I'm like, what do I do with this? Oh, and my Lord. Now that girl's 30 years old. She's an RN in Little Rock. And when we laugh back about that moment, my wife says, regardless of everything else that was wrong with you, when I knew that my daughter accepted you, you had oh. passed all the hurdles I needed to worry about. The rest of it, I had to work on myself. Wow. And so even That's with all really of the good. challenges, that was that was kind of what cemented it. When she showed up at church the next Sunday, another visitation team met her the next Wednesday. Then I we had, had her back on Sunday. And by Christmas Eve, I had proposed to her and we were agreed to be married September the 3rd of the following year. Wow. Wow. So so um, where did you guys end up living? Where did you go from there? Because you you sounds like you moved a lot. Well, we did, like I said, and nine jobs, excuse me, yeah. 13 jobs, nine moves and four children in the first 10 years of our marriage. Wow. And so, you know, we, we were married when I moved from the truck driving job to the cab job to the, to the restaurant. And then I was selling advertising for the, for the local cable place. And I walked into this place of business in Tyler called Postal Plus. And the guy said, yeah, hold on. I want to talk to you. I just let me finish this phone call. And I overhear him talking about a restaurant that he's been that he had purchased and was trying to run. Right. And as they're arguing back and forth, him and the guy that he bought it from, he's trying to get his money back. The guy won't give it back. He's telling you, know, you've got false numbers. You had this and this and this and this. And I recognized the pattern of the numbers, the drive through numbers versus the delivery numbers versus the in-store numbers. And when he got off the phone, I said, are you talking about XYZ? restaurant. He's like, how could you possibly know that from what I said? And I said, well, I ran it for almost a year. He said, are those numbers accurate? I said, well, they were when I was there, but you know, his daughter took over. I have no idea what she did. He said, right now we can't do $500 for the whole day. Oh, like now that wow. used to be our lunchtime delivery. Wow. He's like, you want a job? I'll hire you yeah. to run it. So I went back up there for a couple of months and I, I called him one day. I'm like, look, she has done such a bad job running this customer service wise. It's never going to recover. But you got two employees here who are worth keeping. I would recommend that you move them other, over to your other restaurant and shut the place down and sell the business. Just sell the building. You'll be better off. He's like, well, what are you going to do for a job? I said, I didn't have a job when I would, I wasn't looking for a job when I got this one. So, you know, it's not going to break my heart. I'll land on my feet. Right. They said, well, why don't you come run my Postal Plus business so I can take some time to do oil and gas? So I ran it for about a year. And then I got an offer to leave there and go open one for somebody in Austin, Texas. And when I told him I was leaving, he said, I'll tell you what, if you'll stay, I'll owner finance the business zero down because you've done such an incredible job and made me so much more money. 
I'll step out. You run it like it's yours. You give me 20% of the profit every month of the net profit. Wow. And you run it like you're now I'm 27 years old. I'm newly married. I've got kids in the house. I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never been to business school, never been to college, right. never had a mentor in my life that would have said to me, that's a great business opportunity. Here's what I did have about six months before that. I remembered when I was in the air force and I was at Lubbock uh, at where the Texas tech was. And I was working on the very first version of my book, a collection of poetry and I would go into the Kinkos there and I would type it up on their computer and I would print it on their computer and then I would duplicate it on their copiers and then I would saddle stitch it myself. And I said, you know, Tyler could use a Kinkos. And I had finally reconnected with my dad to some degree and said, you know, Tyler should have a Kinkos here. And his reply was this. The people who run that business are a whole lot smarter than you. And if they thought there was any chance whatsoever that a Kinko's could survive in a town the size of Tyler, they have already built it. You need to just keep up with your job and worry about your own business. Yeah. And so shot me in the foot and I said, okay, he's probably right. So when this guy said, you know, owner finance and run this business, I didn't have the confidence in me that I could do it. So instead I took a pay raise of $4,000 and I packed up my family and moved to Austin. Wow. Well, less than a year later, mailboxes, et cetera, bought out the Postal Plus, and he sold that then to the UPS store for hundreds of thousands of dollars. The Blimpies is still there. The last time I was in Tyler, that was part of the package as well. I love so Blimpies. I, I walked away from all of that to realize if I'd had a mentor in my life who would have said, that's a good business opportunity with zero down on a 20% payout. Yeah. But you could have paid that off in three years and then you've been the one that sold it for half a million dollars. So. Right. Right. Yeah. If I have business regrets, that's one. Well, you know, um, and, and Jay says, thanks dad. Damage was done right then. Um, but you know, I, and my wife loves blimpies too. We don't have blimpies in Ohio, just so you know. So I no, you I, don't. I, I I love blimpies, but so so but you have Quiznos. We do, we do. I don't love Quiznos. I, I, I have, only like I, their beer cheese soup and the bread bowl. I don't remember ever being in a Quiznos. In fact, I'm not sure I've <laughs> ever been to one. Um, but you know, and maybe I have. But but so so. When, when I'm looking at the time, I can't believe we've been on here already 42 minutes. That's crazy. So when, when I'm going to ask this now and we'll get into this, um, more in detail, but, um, and, and also speckle in some of your story through here, but you know, first I've seen you on stage, I think twice now where somebody tells a story and then you teach them how to reframe. I, I, how, what do you, what is it you call it? You reframe the story, deliver it more interestingly. <laughs> I don't know what you call. I forget what you call it. Um, I, I guess it, it reframing is a good a good word for it. In fact, that's what Jack Canfield would call it is reframing. I love um, Jack Canfield because it's a, it's really about the position of your mindset. But a, a lot of people, when they tell a story, it's a monologue. It's you know, it began here and they want to go beginning to end. And what I found in my life is from a teachability standpoint, most people's attention span isn't that long. And if you take too long chronologically, you lose them yep. in the details and they never get the point. So yeah. what I what I do through story power is help people to identify the incidences from their life 
that best illustrate the point they're trying to make so that they can add a call to action and say, now that you've heard this, do this. You know, you yeah. think back to the old sales ideas, there's the AB close, do this, get this. Then there's right. the ABC close that I did this, you should do this, you will get this. Right. And then the ABC, right. the I did this, I got this. If you do this, you'll get this. Right. You know, right. Every commercial in the world kind of follows one of those three principles. Well, the call to action that follows a story that just resonates in your heart and never leaves, that's the story that will come up 20 years from now. Now, I, yeah. I, I'll guarantee you, anybody who's been paying attention today will think of that phone call with my dad. You know, just like Jay said, with if somebody were qualified to do that and that's not you, they would have made a different decision. Okay, yeah. so there's a whole lot that goes into that story. There's a lot of psychology in that story. There's a lot of predictive outcomes that are in that story. There's a lot of attitude in that story. And here we are 25 years later. I, my relationship with my dad hasn't changed. I've had more conversation with you today, Ken, than I've had with my dad this year. Wow. Just an illustration. Last year in November, I won the President's Lifetime Achievement Award. I, I only had two guest seats besides mine and my wife. So I know that my mom has Alzheimer's. She can't remember my name. So she wouldn't know if she's at that event or not. So right. I texted my dad and said, I'd love you to come as my guest of honor. He didn't reply to the text until after the event was over. Wow. Those kinds of stories in a, in a short instance explain things like why I parent the way I do. Both of my boys, when they're in relationship, when they're looking at jobs, when they're thinking about buying a car, we have a very in-depth conversation about that. I, I spend time with my grandchildren on a regular basis as often as I can. And I get calls from my daughters on a regular basis. Hey, come see the boys. Come hang out with the boys. Because I refuse to have the kind of relationship with my kids and grandkids that my dad has had with me and my, my kids or his but, grandkids. You know what, though? I mean, honestly, I get that. Uh, on uh, I get. Trust me, I get that. And, and, you know, I think that what you've done is you've taken something, I, obviously he's battling his, his own demons. He's, he's fighting his own demons in right. life. And, um, but you've taken that and said, you know, I'm just, it's an example of what not to do. Not everything's a great example, <laughs> unless you look at it from the per perspective of what not to do. Well, and, and so that's what story power is really about. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had that person come through the workshop and they tell a story. And when I hear him tell the story, you know, the probably the most infamous one is the, the lady who came in the workshop. Uh, we I did like I did like you've seen me do on stage. Everybody tells a story and then I immediately retell it with the reframe. And so she told her story. Then I got up and told her story. And I only remember one significant change that I made. When she told the story, she said, when that woman walked in the room, I just saw such hatred in her eyes. When mm -hmm. I told the story, I said, when the woman walked in the room, there was just so much hatred in the room. And during the break, she came to me with tears streaming down her face. And she said, I can't believe what you did. I said, what are you talking about? She said, you made that one change in my story. And it made me ask the question, did she really hate me? Because for 39 years, that woman has owned me by hating me so much. And I've done everything I can to try to win her affection back. And now I realize that may not have been her hatred at all. It may have been mine. Mm. And now I have control to do something about it. Jack Canfield says E plus R equals O. 
Yep. The event plus your response to it is what determines the outcome. Amen. And she had for 39 years allowed what she interpreted as that woman's emotions to dictate the behavior of her own life. We all do that to some extent, right? Yeah. But yeah. a lot of public speakers take the stage and they don't realize that creating a word picture assumes that you're going to feel about that incident the way I felt about that incident when it happened. And that's simply not true. A lot of times we experience the same incident with an entirely different background coming to the moment. And as a result, it causes us to freak out. My wife was date raped at 19 years old, years before I met her. The guy who did it wore polo cologne. Ugh. Used to be my favorite cologne. Haven't worn it in 30 years because when I wear it around her, all of those things in the hippocampus and the hypothalamus start to yep. fire off again. And, and her mind, her subconscious mind believes she's in the same sense of danger that she was when she smelled it last time. And so knowing those triggers are there, we often set up the perfect story from our own standpoint without regard for who else is in the room. And so in Story Power, that's really what we talk about. It's not just how do you reframe your story, but how do you make what you tell palatable to the people in the audience, not just your story. I've heard people say, well, I'm just being authentic. Yeah. I think, well, no, you're actually being offensive or hurtful because right. you're more concerned with getting your point across than getting your point across to them. Exactly. I love that, man. I love that. And everybody should, Debbie Bettendorf says, can you follow me around and reframe my conversations? <laughs> she's, she's so funny. But, and Jay says that you've changed his, his, um, you've changed him today. So, you know, I think, I, I think that, and, and Jay was at the conference. I don't know if you, um, if you, obviously you didn't meet, but um, Jay's a good, good friend of mine that lives down there. Um, so, let me ask you a question. What do you think? Now, before I ask it, the number one, I ask this on every show, by the way, and the number one answer is fear. So you have to do better than that. <laughs> so the here, here's the question. <clears throat> Excuse me. What, in your opinion, what do you think keeps holds people back in life from two things. Number one, real financial success. And listen, I don't care what anybody says. I've been homeless and broke and I've been wealthy and homeless and broke sucks. Wealthy is better. So what do you think, what do you think holds people back from achieving real financial success and freedom and happiness in life? Please don't say fear. Oh, no, I, <laughs> I would say it's a misunderstanding of both. You know, when it comes to money, there are a lot of people. I love the way John Maxwell says it. And similar to you, he says, I've been broke and I've been rich and rich is a whole lot better. Yeah. Uh, it, it gives you a whole lot more options. Yes. But being in the faith world, I also operate a lot around a lot of people. I was just on the phone with a uh, lady yesterday and she said, um, I felt like God told me to give away my house. And she meant literally sign the deed over and yet still pay the mortgage on a house that she's got 25 years worth of equity in. And so she gave it to a ministry and she still pays the mortgage on it. Wow. And so that's costing her money, but she's no longer the head of that ministry. So she doesn't have a salary and income. She said, I've, I've donated my RV to a, a film set for the next two weeks. Uh, they're not paying anything. I didn't ask them to. I told them if they had, if they felt like they had to pay to put it into the ministry. 
there's no income from that. But in her way of looking at life, she said, I'm, I'm finally living what I say I believe. I'm living on faith. I believe that God's going to provide a way. And he does. People show up with a $10,000 check with no explanation. There's like, God told me to give you this. And, and I know it goes to the mission that, that you're called to. So here it is. Wow. Go do it. Wow. She's perfectly content with that level of faith, knowing right. that God will provide exactly what she needs at the time that she needs it. Right. I know others who, though, would say that's not good stewardship if you don't have a million dollar 401k, you know, sitting behind you so you can retire or, you know, God forbid you have some kind of accident or have to go into long term care. So the position of success and wealth as it relates to a dollar figure is a hard thing to determine. Um, that, I think, is as individual as your spouse. There are people who would say, well, it's got to be six figures, got to be eight figures. You got to have real estate. You got to have blah, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. Right. And right. then the stock market crashes and everything they had in the bank becomes dust and, and it's all gone. Right. On the other hand, I think there are people who want what they would call success in life, having never tasted anything. Everything is more successful than they are. Everything is a better opportunity. Everything is a new opportunity. And the reason there, it might be based in fear or summarized to fear, but the truth is it's an identity crisis. They don't know who they are, what their assignment is, why they're on earth in the first place. And without a sense of purpose, we live our lives like ping pong balls on a hardwood floor bouncing from one side to the other. It's just a matter of which part we land on today that right. redirects where we're going. And I think that's a challenge for people. When you've got a good idea who you are, what you're here for, what you're supposed to be doing, that kind of changes everything. Yeah. Wow. So true, man. So true. You know, I, I can remember my wife and I starting our first, we, we, I don't know, 12 years ago, we opened our first office together and, um, and, uh, you know, we had a handful of employees. Everybody was getting paid except for us. One day, this this guy that worked for me walks in, big old boy. He way bigger than me, and he's like, "Hey," uh, and I'm on a phone call. Hey, there's somebody looking in the windows of your SUV out in the parking lot, and I'm like, "Dude, tell him to get the hell out of here. You're bigger than me." Like what? And he's like, "Well, he's got it blocked with a tow truck," and I was like. Uh -oh. I don't know if you've ever tried to talk a repo man out of taking your car, but it's, it's, yep. it's a, a, a moot point. And, and so, um, I stood there that day and watched this flatbed drive away with my car on it in front of all my employees in the parking lot. And it was in that moment that I was like, what's the point of being on this earth? Why, why even go on? Like, this is ridiculous. And, you know, during the, the pandemic and all that stuff, insanity, suicide rates skyrocketed, everything just went sideways in the world. What do you say to somebody that is, feels like they've tried everything, they've given life everything they have, and they're barely hanging on by a thread? What do you say if they called you and said, I don't know what to do? I'm over all this. What is next? What do you say to them? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, ironically, it's at the end of both of my other two books. Oh, um, wow. Live a More Excellent Life uh, is a, a study and a journey of mentorship. These are the before story power was story power, these are the 13 lessons I learned in life in the story. And in chapter 13, it says, I want a father like that. And it talks about the father who refused to give up on his kid. I'll tell mm. you that story in a second. 
the five battle strategies of a victorious warrior is the journey that walked me out of a 25 year addiction. And so wow. it took me almost 12 years to write this book after the, uh, after the process of overcoming the addiction. But in the end, it comes to the same conclusion. And that is, it's that identity crisis. You know, many of us, especially men, don't have a solid relationship with our father. And without a solid relationship with our father, we lose the who that I am. Uh, my Leading Leaders podcast this morning comes from John Maxwell's book, The uh, Winning with People. And mm. just a very short segment, he says, these are the five things that identify who you are and you will do who you are. Who you are tells you what to do. Most people don't know who they are. They've lost their identity in the crises of life. And because of that, when something goes sideways, I, mean, I remember standing in the driveway. It was, it was starting to rain February the 12th of 2012. We were seven years into a 15-year note on our first dream home that we built. My wife and I had refinanced the home in 2008, uh, fun time of our, of our yeah. economy. And yeah. as a result, Wells Fargo decided to foreclose on our home. And I said, but we've never missed a payment. So we're back and forth with this argument. Well, February the 12th of 2012 was the day that we packed everything we owned. And I watched my wife carry her box of little precious things down the driveway as we spent two years homeless living in somebody else's trailer in the country in Oklahoma. And for the next wow. two years of our life, we really evaluated, you know, was it the $90,000 a year job that I had at Verizon that, that, Put us in this place was that not enough money you know we homeschooled our kids we kept them out of public school so that we could educate them in a way that we felt was right so we had better control of what was going on in their minds and was that not enough did we not sacrifice enough of course this was also two years after i'd given up my job at verizon to be a john maxwell coach and i was figuring out what it meant to leave my dj business and, and all that other stuff and thought completely redirecting just to the public speaking was going to be my future and it was a, a very trying time in our life. Suicide has crossed my mind more than once in my life. And when I look back on all of those moments, suicide at its pinnacle in my life was the last female I was with before I met my wife, almost 90 days before I met my wife. And when that day was over, I remember writing and leaving a note for my roommate. And the note said this, how many times can a runner run in a race before the race is just over? And I picture the 92 Olympics when the runner was leading the pack. And on turn three, he pulled a hamstring and he limped to turn four. And by the time he got to the final straightaway, he was dragging himself on the track. The yeah. rest of the pack left him. They crossed the finish line. They were about to call it. And he's still in his lane, still on the track, trying to drag himself to the finish line. When an old man comes out of the stands and grabs him on his shoulder and walks him across the finish lines. He finished way, way back, but he finished. As the story comes out later, turns out the old man who came out of the stands picked him up on the track and walked him in his lane across the finish line. That was his dad. Wow. He would have won the Olympics hand down if he had not pulled a hamstring. Wow. But somebody never giving up on him was the case. Well, I sat there on the swing that day, literally contemplating how can I end my life and still leave my mom the car and my, and my life insurance? And as I sat there, I had an old book in my hand called The Screwtape Letters. And I randomly turned to a page, said swing in Tyler, Texas, just before I met my wife. I'm looking at this page and I keep rereading it because my emotions are just a mess. And as I'm rereading it, it says the conversation between uncle and Wormwood, he says, 
I got him this time. He's down. He's done. He has failed. He will never get up again. He is finished. And the uncle says to the young demon, you may think you've got him down, but you've discounted the presence of his father. See, his father never looks at him and says, I can't believe you failed. I can't believe you fell. No, his father looks at him like the father of a toddler, looks at his toddler and says, mm. if you hadn't tried to walk, you couldn't have fallen. I'm proud of you that you tried to walk in the first place. Those words saved my life. Wow. And when I encounter people today who are struggling, whether it's I've lost everything financially, I've lost everything emotionally, I've lost everything relationally, I don't know how to move forward. I always push them back to that question to go, well, why were you here to, to begin with? Does your father still love you? And that may not be your earthly father. That may be your heavenly father. And the answer to that question is yes. That's also an absolutely definitive answer that I don't care how bad you've screwed up. I've screwed up as bad as you can possibly get. The only thing I haven't done is murder somebody. In that context, though, to hate somebody is to murder them, according to Jesus. So I guess I've done it all. And yet I still wow. know without a shadow of a doubt, through my addiction, through the, the violent yelling at my wife, through the physical altercations that I've had with my kids, God the Father still loves me no matter what. And he doesn't care about my bank account. He doesn't care about my number of friends on Facebook. He cares about me personally and individually. And that's true of Ken Walls and it's true of everybody else that I've ever met. I've never met a human that God didn't die for. Wow. That's worth living for. Do you, I heard a mic drop or something a second ago. It was a little early. It was a book. <laughs> but, it was a book. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, can I, you drop being it again? In the AV world, I'm not a, I'm not a mic drop guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I know. Oh my gosh, man. That was so powerful. I mean, that was so powerful. I, I, I honestly, that, that right there, that last, 60 seconds of what you just said is, is is powerful it's so powerful the 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 i i and you're so good at telling the story like the i had the visual of the old man coming out to the track and um <laughs> jay fox said don't drop the mic um <laughs> being from the radio radio world Man, Lauren, that is so powerful. Where, <coughs> excuse me, where can everybody follow you? What's your website? Uh, J. Lauren Norris is the, is the main webpage. From there, you can go to resources and find all the books and videos and podcasts and classes and all that kind of stuff on the resources tab. So it's just www.jlaurennorris, you said? Yes. Sorry, I was coughing.com. Um, whoops, let me, I'm going to scroll that across the bottom of the page. Is there a place on social media that you're most active that, that people can follow you as well? Oh, my Facebook profile. Uh, I think I'm at my friend's limit if there is such a thing, but I've got a, another page for the leading leaders podcast has its own Facebook page. That's just every day I do a five minute or excuse me, five to 15 minute leadership teaching. It's just solo. We don't do a lot of interviews or anything on there. Uh, Story Power TV is where we interview people about the stories that are going on in their life. Um, and so that's storypower.tv, but it's also on Facebook as Story Power TV. And then Transforming Grace TV are the interviews that my wife and I do right here in this studio. We bring couples in who have seen the impact of addiction in their marriage relationship wow. and the devastation that it's done. And we 
kind of coach them through or talk them through that process and share their story along the way as well. I'm um, look, Jay. Jay, where can we meet? I want more. You'll love Jay. He's such hey, I love man. to eat. You can buy me lunch anytime. He's awesome. You'll love him. Um, so before we go, I, I and I, I normally like it's an hour long, but and we're an hour and three minutes in. But I want to ask because you're you're. I love John Maxwell, and um, you're John Maxwell coach. Would you touch on, because I think this is, and you've, you've inadvertently touched on this already, um, touch on the, the law of the lid that John Maxwell writes about and talks about. I, I really want people to understand how important it is, because um, that's all about mindset and it's about what other people have have put on you <laughs> oh, it, right. one of my favorite lines out of a movie is don't you put that evil on me ricky bobby <laughs> <laughs> so right so talk about the law of the lid a little bit if you would yeah so the the law of the lid i i love the way john maxwell you know he puts his hand at me he says the the law of the lid tells me that you'll never rise above the lid so whatever that lid is in your life if that lid is your communication skills if that lid is your tolerance of others if that lid is your lack of patience you'll never rise above that lid and here's the other thing you need to know the team that you lead will never rise above that lid either so if the best that you can do in communication on a scale of one to ten is a four then your team will never be above a four in communication. Why? Because you can't lead them where you can't go. You mm. can't lead them to follow you where you've never been. Mm. And so when we look at the journey that is leadership and say, well, how am I going to impact somebody's life? How am I going to make their life better? Our qualifications, how far we've stretched, how much we've improved, how far we've grown is directly indicative of how far we can take somebody else down that same journey. And that relational aspect of leadership is often forgotten when we think of leadership as management. I'm going to make you do what I want you to do. I'm going to tell you to do it and you're going to do it and you're going to comply because I'm going to pound you on the head if you don't or take your job or threaten you with your income or threaten you with your days off or make you wear a mask or whatever else. That compliance to management and leadership are not the same thing. Leadership is about influence, nothing more and nothing less. Also a John Maxwell philosophy a very powerful philosophy because what it says is people will tend to do things that they want to do when they've been demonstrated that those things are good and right. Mm. You can't make somebody do something. In fact, uh, one of the things that John Maxwell said, and I tested it for about 10 years at, at a very large church in Dallas. Um, he said, if you want to know whether or not you're a true leader, lead volunteers mm. because all of the carrot and stick is gone. They'll either follow in the footsteps that you're influencing them toward because they see that it's beneficial and productive or they won't because you yeah. can't make them. You can't fire a volunteer. And so that, that relationship changes really fast. But the law of the lid very clearly says, if you haven't gone there, you can't lead there. If you're not willing to do it, you're not going to be able to do it. I remember taking a job at Mazio's Pizza before I met Karen, still, you know, first year out of the Air Force in Tyler, Texas. And when I walked in the door, the guy said, man, you've got the military background. You're the right age. You're the next store manager of this store. And I was like, great, awesome. And so the first day we were walking in and, and there was pasta on the floor. And I stopped where I was at and I picked up the pasta and I carried it around in my hand. He didn't notice I'd picked it up. And finally, he reached to shake my hand and I had pasta in my hand. He's like, what is that? 
I said, well, I picked it up off the floor, but I haven't seen a trash can yet. And so he laid me the trash can. I, I threw it away. I washed my hand. He said, you're definitely the person I want for the manager of this store. <laughs> and for the first two and a half weeks, I crawled around on my hands and knees under the table, picking up pasta, busts and tables, et cetera, et cetera. In two and a half weeks, he never even had me cut a pizza. And I finally went to him and I said, I don't know if this is, you know, slave boy training or if this is, you know, back <laughs> office training or what this is supposed to be. But <clears throat> I thought you hired me as a leader and I've done every grunt job in the place except lead. He right. said, well, yeah, that's how leadership works. I'm not sure that our idea of leadership would have ever really crossed paths, uh, but he did find somebody who is willing to, for the sake of the title, put up with a whole lot of silliness yeah. because the title was in their eyes. And I think there were a lot of people who operate that way too. They think if I can get the job title when I partner in this business, or if I can get the job title of CE something or CO or CM or whatever, as long as yeah. it's a chief in my name, it'll be worth it whatever I have to do to get that. And the truth is they're not contributing greatly to the organization. They're just serving for the sake of a title. On the other hand, you see guys that, you know, ask Elon Musk about being a CEO. He laughs out loud. He's like, I don't call him, care if you call me the CEO or the chief title guy. I, you call me whatever you want to. I just know there's work to be done and I'll do all of it that I can do. Yep. That's an enormous difference in leadership perspective. Amen. I agree thousand percent. And that guy sleeps on the factory floor sometimes. I mean, so I, you know, I, I, First off, thank you for coming on here and sharing your story, being so transparent and, and willing to deliver so much value. Everybody watching, and if you're listening or you're on the replay, go follow Lauren. Go to his website, jlaurennorris.com. Lauren, you are a real gift to this world. Um, I don't thank know you. if... I told you this or not, but I, I, if I make it to August the 10th, I have 20 years of sobriety. So I've been in recovery for awesome. a long time myself. Um, and, and I understand all of the demons and, um, have battled them myself. So I understand, um, this has been absolutely wonderful. I'm, I'm so grateful for you. And, um, the message you deliver is, is just powerful. It's so powerful. And I've seen you do it on stage with people that have a boring, pardon my language, but a boring ass story <laughs> and you take it and do your magic and, and it's incredible. So, um, everybody, well, we, we do have another story power masterclass coming up, coming up September the 10th. So if anybody wants to, you know, go to the class to learn how to tell their story that way and understand the psychology behind it, I'd be glad to have them. They can find that at storypowermasterclass.com. How much is it to join that? Uh, $9.97 unless you're part of the Rockstar, and then it's $4.97 if you sign up under the Rockstar. That's awesome. So awesome. Everybody I go. Think, I think that bonus is still on the page. So if you just click on the Rockstar one, I won't know any different as long as you do it before I take it down. That's awesome. That's so awesome. Everybody go check out jlaurennorris.com and, and dig into everything that this guy has. You're, you're incredible. Thank you for your amazing story and transparency. And thank you. Um, everybody, make sure you follow him everywhere too. So Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you, I'm going to end the live stream. Um, but 
hang on for me so so we can finish up but everybody have an awesome day go follow lauren go to the website and we'll see you all tomorrow thanks so much lauren thanks folks thanks for sharing see you guys bye-bye